This episode of 614 Startups is brought to you by Share and Eco. Share is a ride sharing service for the rides you take the most, like rides to work or school. Check out ridewithshare.com and transform your commute. Ecove is a venture development company founded to pursue early stage investments in the Midwest. Visit ecovecapital.com and learn how they are bringing life-disrupting technology from the lab to humanity. Welcome to another episode of the 614 Startups Podcast, your entrepreneurial guide to life and success in Columbus, Ohio. Follow the stories of startup founders as they journey from idea to scale to impact. 614 Startups Nation, this is Elio Harmon, your host, and I am back. It's been a while. I should have never left you but I am back with a doozy and my man, John D'Elia of Housing JV is in the building. What's up, John? Ow, ow, ow! <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Hi, hi, hi. What's Happy up, man? Here. Howdy. I'm glad you're excited, man. My man. Because we go way back. Yeah, quite some time now. I mean, a few years, actually. Easily. Yeah. Easily. And we met at Upper Cup Coffee, I think. The Entrepreneur's Blend. If you haven't drinking it or supported the podcast, please do so by drinking The Entrepreneur's Blend. And I didn't even prompt you to do that. No, but I listen to the show. So if I do, you know, the only thing more would be to drink more of the coffee. Yes. Yes. And Upper Cup, I mean, I'm partial because we're partnered with them to do Entrepreneur's Brew. But great coffee. Great coffee, great community, and um, a great ecosystem that they're facilitating. Mm -hmm. So I, I definitely agree. And it was almost like it was serendipitous that you have The Entrepreneur's Blend with Upper Cup. So, yeah, I think it's awesome. Yeah. And I think the very first conversation that we had, housing came up because this is a subject that you're just so passionate about. And, you know, it's that common conversation. Hey, how are you? What do you do? Housing was your thing. And we had a brief conversation about that. So at the top of every show, we'd like to rewind the tape a little bit and get people to know you. So wherever you'd like to start your story, I know it's fascinating. I've already read it, but I'd like to hear you tell it. Okay. So I'm going to tell it through a story. Okay. And the story is when I was reading, and I still remember I was sitting in, not Upper Cup, but I was in the Starbucks in German Village on 3rd. And I was reading, um, what was it? It was Snowball by Alice Schroeder. And it's the story of Warren Buffett. And during the book, you know, there's a chapter called The Ovarian Lottery, in which Buffett describes how we're all born into our circumstance, situation, and essentially position in life. So he described how he was born into a family of senators, et cetera, and that enabled him to become who he was. And I think to my own life, you know, I was born in, um, into a family in New York. I'm a second generation real estate developer. I'm a first generation American, meaning my father was born in the country of Haiti, as we call it, IET. Um, but, you know, he, he was able to, um, not just him, but my grandfather was able to get us over here to the United States, get us over to Long Island, bring my father over, then bring the rest of the family over. But they were able to establish their roots on Long Island. And eventually my father became a real estate developer. Um, you know, after I grew up during my wonderful ovarian lottery, you know, I was able to recognize, wow, look at the opportunity, look at the access, look at the exposure. I probably want to learn more about the family business. So really in 2009, that drove me from Long Island to Columbus, where I decided that, hey, there was a position and access open. And this is what I wanted to move in the direction for my life at the time. You know what? This is a classic story. This story has come up multiple times. It's my story as well. This whole first generation 
uh, American, right? But when people are coming over from whatever situation they're coming from and they hit these shores, you see opportunity everywhere in America. Whereas I think a lot of people who are born into it, speaking of the general American ovarian lottery, they can't see it. But when you're born outside of that ovarian lottery, there's opportunity anywhere. Do you have anything to add to that? You know, I'll add to where I'm at today is that in a position of gratitude. So once again, you know, I had an opportunity to go back to Haiti in 2012 and that was post earthquake. And I remember, you know, driving in our white SUV AC vehicle through the coast of whatever, you know, small town. And I was with my uncle who's a hotel owner. And I looked over and I said, oh, my God, like, how do we get out of this? How did how did we get out of this? And you know what he said? Education. I said, oh, come on, you're kidding. Education. And I realized, you know, it's not just education, but it's a sacrifice that each generation took to allow the next to get a better education, a proper education and more exposure. So I think to myself that, you know, without that, you know, privilege, the ovarian lottery, you know, I wouldn't have been as fortunate to receive the education that I did. Awesome. How's your French? Um, je parle, um, je parle français un, un petit peu, mais moyen. So I'm Haitian. So I speak more of the people's language, which is Creole. Mm-hmm. And I, I tend to blend the two. But I, I did study French. I mean, I want to say four years throughout high school. But, you know, I, I do blend the two. Uh-huh. Good but, enough to communicate. Yeah, I mean, you know. You don't I, feel I, like an outsider at the family reunion. You can no, still I hold can your understand. Own. So okay. I may not be able to verbally speak as rapidly as you would, one would hope. You would hope. I would hope. Mm-hmm. But... No one can talk badly about me in the room. It's like, hey, I I understood you, buddy. Gotcha. So you're on the East Coast, Long Island, family's there. Yep. What brings you to Columbus? Opportunity. You know, I came to Columbus in 2009. Um, I graduated high school in 08, so I'm now 28 years old. Um, And in 08, you know, the market crashed. The market crashed. It went down. Obama had just been elected or was being elected, I want to say. And, you know, inevitably, I just looked at the outlook of the options. I wasn't going directly away for college like most people. I was kind of non-traditional. And really, I just said to myself, oh, my God, what are the options? What's available? And really, I I remember as a a youth, you know, we would travel to Columbus during summers. My family held property in the city. So, you know, we would come every now and then. But, you know, when an opportunity opened up, I said to myself, look, I don't want to (laughs) struggle. You know, the New York life is very expensive. And I think I could recognize not just the cost of living, but the pace was a little more so that, you know, it's more forgiving, I'd say. Okay, gotcha. And so did Columbus live up to your expectations? Did you do your research before you got here or it just felt right? What was it? Was it your head or your heart that brought you here? This is my bank account. <laughs> <laughs> That's your I mean, pocket, my head or my pocket. heart. I mean, my heart was, hey, I want to be with family. I want to learn the family business. I want to be exposed. My head said, hey, John, you're a young guy. You're not really on the family bankroll or I'll call it the expense account anymore. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to like establish yourself and be able to make a living. But, you know, on another end, I mentioned I didn't want to struggle. So in the sense that the cost of living. So I think my head told me that, hey, you're a young man. There's a, an abundance of opportunity in Columbus. And if you can stay patient, I think a lot of times us young people, you know, we want to hop from market to market, city to city, trying to find fun. And I remember my dad saying, hey, you don't understand what fun is. And I was like, what are you talking about? Fun is in the city with my buddies hanging out, you know? And he's like, no, you don't understand fun. So I think once I took the time to learn, you know, Columbus really opened itself up to me. Awesome. And so uh, when I think real estate, even though you said, you know, this, this thing is the family business and maybe that helped you gain a little bit of a comfort level with it. When I think real estate, I say, oh my gosh, loans, you know, huge debt, a lot of risk. 
being a landlord, man, what were some of the lessons learned from watching your dad do what he did? And how did that kind of make you feel comfortable enough to say, hey, this is a business that I want to go into on my own? So once again, playing off that premise of the ovarian lottery, we all have our unfair competitive advantage. So I think for me, being a second generation developer, you know, sitting in the office on Divot Place in Columbus, Ohio, you know, I had the access to my father's files. And within the files were a set of data points that allowed me to realize what was possible. So I think too often, you know, you know, I remember growing up, my father was always home. He was always on the couch. He was always like, you know, watching TV and making dinner. I'm like, who are you? Like, what do you do? Don't you have a job? Like, why are you? I used to, I, I have a line in my book. I wrote a book last November. I have a line that, not even a line, a chapter that calls, you know, I thought my millionaire father was a bum. Only because I think the outward, um, the outward expectation to success was you had a big position, you were at a big company, you had a big logo on your card, and that would define success. And I think, you know, I, I grew up in the sense of stealth wealth, where, you know, it, we didn't really drive the, you know, the BMW, the Bentley, the this, the that. We had a minivan, a Jaguar, et cetera. But we also had a lot of siblings. But, you know, coming to Columbus, I had the opportunity in the, in the office after I took some time. I really wanted to be in the office, but I had to start outside. When I finally got into the office, I got into the file cabinet, and he started to show me purchasing power and the value of money. You know, in New York, I grew up in a culture where, I, I won't say we didn't value money, but I'd say because money was such an excess, and it was such a byproduct of success, that, I mean, that level of disposable income makes you think that it's just, it's disposable. Hey, I can spend it on clothes, I can spend it on shoes. I used to buy like three, $400 denim at Nordstrom's because I thought it was cool. You know, I was trying to fit in. You know, BBC, Billionaires, Boy, Boys Club, et cetera, was the hoodies. They were all out there. My friends could buy, you know, bathe in ape sneakers. And I'm like, oh, I want to too. But I couldn't really compete in that sense. But coming to Columbus, you know, my father, I think what he was trying to ingrain with me was like, look, your money is valuable. And look, if you invest it and spend it the right way. So, you know, I remember going through like transactions and purchase histories and seeing the amount, we call them units. A unit is a door. A door is a building. You know, so how many units can you have in a building? So a multifamily, let's say I own a 14-unit building, 14 units, 14 doors. So when he started and began to show me the purchasing power of my money, I started to realize that, oh my God, like there's a lot of value. And just to fast forward, my first house in central Ohio was off of Williams Road um, down south, um, not too far from the Great Southern Shopping Center, but inevitably it cost me $6,900 and it was a duplex and I owned half a block. And I'll tell you, I remember my first car was an Audi A4 Quattro. I had an engine 2.1 or 4 turbo. I forgot. But man, I could buy a house. Are you kidding me? And a duplex? So, you know, once again, I think with, with experience and exposure, what I call it now, it just opened my eyes. You know, I think everything is scary to the extent that you're ignorant about it. And I think no one uh, except people who uh, are positioned to take advantage, not only to know, but actually how to execute. And so you buy your first property, and does the bug bite you at that point, or are you still just dabbling? Hey, I don't know if I'm gonna make a career of this thing. I might still go get that big job with the big title. Right. Because in immigrant families, yeah. you know, stealth wealth doesn't always mean as much uh, as maybe you're a doctor, you're a lawyer. So. Are you fully convinced after the purchase of that first property that real estate is what you're going to do? Or are you still seeking something else? So I think intention is a true driver of action. And I think for myself, when I look at the intention, I'm a junior. I'm John Delia Jr. 
when I came over, I was junior at the company. I was junior family guy. Oh, the young kid comes in and he wants to be a manager, et cetera. So I think, you know, when I left, my intention was not just I want to be independent. It was like, hey, I want to do this on my own and I want to establish my own name, my own track record. So I think, you know, initially it wasn't a matter of the income, the financial security, et cetera. It was a matter of just having an entity that I could make the decisions and I could be myself. Um, but yeah, once I got in, I'll tell you, I did fail on my first property and I had to sell it within 30 days. But when I sold it, I, make, I made money. You know, and I made nearly 10 grand within 30 days. And I said to myself, man, with all the mistakes, I fired my father from the first job because he wanted to do it for me and it was my money. I was like, no, I'm not going to learn. How am I going to learn? But I realized like, whoa, if I could get this right, I could really do well. And, you know, it's I haven't looked back since. All right. Now, you used a curious word and then turned around and said you made money. You said you failed, but you still made 10 grand. I did. So clear that up for the people who might be listening. Man, you know, so... I, Working for a real estate investment firm and owning a real estate investment firm are two separate entities. So when you work, you're leveraging other people's OPM. And OPM is two things, other people's mistakes and other people's money. So when I was working for the family firm, I was managing my father's money, my father's payroll, my father's maintenance, my father's operation. And I didn't really understand the hidden um, expenses. So what is the cost of doing business? Cost of goods, COGS, what's the cost of operation? How much is payroll every week? How much is this? How much is that? So I think it, you won't ever understand business intimately until you have you know, skin in the game, as they say. So I think you know, for me, one, I was curious in the business, but to the extent that I know how to renovate, how to deal with contractors, how to bid, knowing all the systems of a home, I mean, I was very naive. So once again, I didn't go into it with a full perspective of the right reasons but i think that you know there was a wake-up call that happened quickly mm -hmm. so dad made it look easy man and then when you went out to go try it for yourself you found out it wasn't that easy. my foot in my mouth and i think the one thing that helped me survive was i didn't want to go back home with my tail between my legs i was like no i'm not doing it i'm right. not doing it so i i know housing jv is the is the idea that i think you're gonna put all of your effort, Correct. all of your learning and everything behind. Um, so was it from the start Housing JV or was it another company that transitioned into Housing JV? So Housing JV is, I want to say, six years in the making. Okay. And I've had a lot of stub toes, I'll call them along the way. I believe in failing forward. But, you know, I've had a couple of ventures. My first investment fund, I exited. And, you know, there was a lot of learned lessons there from dealing with investors, having the same investment philosophy, et cetera, et cetera, how to do construction. But I'd say that housing JV is something that, you know, when you look at the merger of an economic wave, when you look at the merger of a um, legislation wave, and when you look at the merger of just passion, I've been able to kind of, you know, join or intersect, you know, these movements with housing JV. So I find that, you know, I was trying to do something similar as early as 2012, but I think the timing in the market to allow me to execute the way we've been able to has happened today. Okay. Now, I know something else important happened along the way between you buying that first property and now where we are. You brought on a partner, a partner in life and a partner in business. That is correct. You got to mention that. I can't let you do no, that to no, yourself. No, 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 no. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, you know, I was able to get married in, um, what year are we in? We're in 2018. Mm -hmm. I want to say it was um, 2017. So we're a year and a few months in. Okay. Um, but, you know, I met my partner in Columbus as well. And funny enough, it was through my financial advisor. And she, my financial advisor was a woman. She's a broker dealer, worked for Edward Jones. And, you know, inevitably I found myself, I, there was, I was young and I was making a lot of money. I got into real estate. I bought my first property at 20 years old. 
So when you're 20 years old, I think your life priorities, your expectation of success, how you spend your money, your frugality, those things evolve over time. And for me, I was just, as my father would say it, I was squandering my money. You were the prodigal son. Man, I just didn't, I didn't appreciate my dollars. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, there was a time where I said, look, I don't want to wake up at 25 and be struggling and not have true success. So I, I aligned myself and I said, look, I got to find mentorship. I got to find guidance. So I, said, I felt that, you know, financial advisor was the best course. I had built a relationship with a woman advisor. I liked her a lot. She was great. And, you know, through running my investment firm, she had actually brought me a contact who was interested in investments. Um, we tried to do a deal. The deal fell through, took months and months and months. And after eight months of static, I don't want to sound like a creeper, but, you know, when the deal fell through and there was enough time in between to give me a grace period, I said to myself, wow, she's a unicorn. Like, I, I should reapproach. And, you know, looking back today, I mean, we've been happily married. We've had a great life together and we're, we're building a, a, a huge business and I'm, I'm really excited. Okay, awesome. And so, you know, there are some pitfalls, I'm sure, because you hear about people saying, hey, I'm not quite sure you want to work with family, but you grew up working with your dad. Now you have an opportunity to meet this person. You guys fall in love, you get married, and she's your business partner. Any lessons learned for the folks who might be listening, who are making a decision about going into business with their spouse? You know, the two of them make a strong team, but what are some things that you have to maybe uh, create some boundaries around when you're working with your spouse? You know, so, you know, I think on any team, you want to be able to offer transparent feedback without the um, issue of being, you know, not just miscommunicating, but thinking that it's a personal attack. So I think that, you know, when you're in an emotional relationship, I think it becomes more intense because not only do you love this person, but you also want to facilitate this person to keep evolving and getting better. So I think in the, in the essence of feedback and communication, I think that there's ways that you have to learn to communicate where it's like, look, I'm not, I'm not against you. I'm not hurting you. But I do want to see us improve and get better in certain areas. So I, I think communication and transparency are one. Otherwise, I think prior to kind of engaging or being in a business relationship, I think you have to make sure that you both are extremely strong in your skill sets separate as well as extremely you know, strong in your skill sets together. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for the most part, I just think of um, trying to develop a means of feedback, communication and just, um, you know, collaboration. Awesome. Awesome advice. Now, Housing J JV, let's get down to the nitty gritty. What is it? Housing JV, we're a marketplace that connects people with socially conscious real estate investment opportunities. All right. Break it down a little bit more for me. So when you say connect people, how does the platform work? So traditionally, real estate has been a closed off market. You know, a lot of times I, I get people, mentors, guidance, et cetera, saying, hey, John, I have this person who wants to meet you. They're interested in investing. They're a full-time worker, X, Y, Z. You know, we found that there was a lack of experience and exposure when, when investing in real estate. And there's not as much transparency, let's say, as investing in the stock market. So for us, it's a matter of, you know, not just making a financial return. So I think when, I, when we're saying socially conscious, it's a matter of we're looking for a dual return. And we call this real estate impact investing or impact investing. And that means we want a dual return, a financial return and a social return. And we're quantifying both. So, you know, I've investing, been investing for a long time and we've realized that I'm, I'm a purpose-driven person, not just a financial-driven person. So Housing JV is looking for people who, they're looking to invest their resources, they're looking to invest their dollars, they want to evolve their education and access. Um, they, they probably want to partner because they're new and they don't want to stub their toes and make as many mistakes, but they also care about the impact of their dollars, not just financially, but also socially. So Housing JV, we're a marketplace where initially we, we curated those opportunities through our own portfolio, and now we're allowing other investors and other developers to you know, put property and projects on the platform and get them funded through the crowd. 
Okay, gotcha. And so on your website, I keep seeing the term accredited. Accredited. What does that mean? So accredited is an individual. It's a person. And whether you're married or single, if you're single, you're making $200,000 a year. If you're married, you know, your household income is about 300000 or in either scenarios, you have a combined net worth of a million dollars. And essentially, that definition has come from the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commissions. And, you know, in 2012, President Obama helped his administration helped introduce legislation, which was known as the Jobs Act, jumpstart opportunities for small businesses, essentially. And it was how can we make it easier for small businesses to raise money? So the initial inceptions of this, you saw Indiegogo, you saw Kickstarter, you saw GoFundMe come on. And those are marketplaces, what? Pairing the public with, you know, not just social, but, but causes they care about. Now, you know, through that evolution, you've seen real estate take on, you know, the marketplace as well in terms of equity crowdfunding. So, you know, an accredited investor is just the type of investor who can invest in a specific deal. Now, currently, our platform is only open to accredited investors and a limited number of non-accredited. But we're in the midst of, you know, lowering our minimums and making it accessible to all people. So we hope by 2020 that all people will have access equally. But as of right now, accredited just allows someone with a certain level of sophistication to invest in our projects. Understood. And so is that kind of a beta test of the system? Uh, with a focus on accredited investors, or what was the business reason behind focusing on accredited investors initially with the goal of eventually opening the platform to everyone? Honestly, it's the lowest barrier to entry. So as I mentioned earlier, I've, Housing JV is, is, is like the amalgamation of multiple businesses and years of experience finally culminating in the perfect storm. And initially in 2012, financially and legally, it was just very difficult, murky waters to navigate. Unless, you know, you had a lot of resources to throw and test, it was very hard from a legal, you know, legal doc standpoint to get the deal done or to create a fund. And, you know, when we're looking now at 2016, when the legislation was finally implemented and enacted and people got it and they understood it, you know, at this point, it's, it's a lot easier and a lot less stringent and strenuous in terms of from a capital standpoint to get it done. So, you know, I think beta is the correct term. Initially, we said, hey, we have this premise. We believe socially conscious people want to invest in real estate, but not just for a profit, but for impact. So we tested it and we went to our network and we went to the market and said, hey, guys, we have these opportunities. Would you want to invest? And we found that, yes, they do. But we also found that there's a level of professionals and investors who also would like to participate, but they might not be accredited yet. Keyword is yet, but they're in their career and they're what's known as a sophisticated investor. They may be in the industry, they may have a high level of education, or in their professional environment, they may have that experience that allows them, you know, that experience and exposure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for us, just from a legal standpoint, in terms of filings, docs, et cetera, it's a lot easier to, we, we, we file under no, what's known as Regulation D, 506B and 506C, which means it limits the number of general solicitation and non-solicitation we do, and it also limits the number of accredited and unaccredited investors. But now, after we've tested it and proven it, we can now say that, hey, guys, you know, we can allocate these resources to a full-scale, let's say, Reg A plus Tier 2, which would allow us to increase our raising limits, but also allow everyday citizens to participate. Gotcha. You know your regs. Let's just put it I that know, way. You know, it's oh, you man, have to, a right? lot of attorneys on our team, so I really appreciate them. <laughs> okay, no problem. Uh, and so um, when you say, how do you define social impact? How does Housing JV define social impact? So you're investing in order to have social impact. How do you guys define that? So, you know, traditionally when, you know, when an investor looks at a real estate deal, they look at IRR, 
what initial or internal rate of return. They look at ROI, return on investment. They look at in real estate, GRM, gross rent multiplier. How long does my gross rent take to you know pay off my initial investment? They look on cash on cash return. They're looking at all these financial KPIs, key performance indicators. And what we do in Housing JV is we look at social indicators or environmental indicators. So one of our key metrics are how many people are impacted by this project. So, you know, when we look at, and, and our projects typically look at the affordable housing crisis or the workforce housing crisis. Affordable are low to moderate income. Workforce is moderate income, meaning your teachers, your firefighters, your nurses, et cetera. Um, they're getting priced out. Across the country, we're seeing an affordable housing crisis. So when looking at neighborhoods, traditionally, we also invest in neighborhoods that have been systematically, I'll call them neglected. So they're overlooked in terms of capital. They're, they're, they've been de-invested in. They typically see high saturations of poverty, high saturations of vacancy, and, and too often an increase in crime. So with that disinvestment, it, it makes it difficult for traditional lending sources to lend in those environments. So with Housing JV, we find ourselves as the risk mitigators and the curators to the possibility. And you know, once again, we look at, okay, if I'm gonna renovate this building in a low-income neighborhood that we believe is gonna transition into a, a moderate-income community, how many people within a household per unit, and once again, a unit is a door, can we influence? I'm gonna look at, in terms of a sustainability standpoint, um, you know, we don't do traditional new construction. Once again, if you look at the trade war and tariffs and the cost of steel, when you look at the oil prices, you know, construction is expensive. So we're going to look at, okay, if we repair, restore, and remodel this unit, what does our carbon footprint look like? And finally, I'm going to look at from an employee and worker standpoint, who's actually inside the units helping us renovate these properties? Too often when you see neighborhoods redeveloping, and too often the term is gentrification. When you see neighborhoods gentrifying, you see outsiders coming in, investing dollars, and profiting from the the rebirth of a community. So too often we look at on the ground stakeholders. I call them corner boys if you ever watch The Wire. But that's probably not the most appropriate term. They're not <laughs> corner boys. But they're local residents who want to participate but may have barriers to entry from a job standpoint, from a training standpoint, from an education standpoint. So with Housing JV, we do our best to facilitate those kind of people to, to participate and integrate into our development. Okay, got it. Uh, and so uh, you mentioned, you know, no new housing. You're not really interested in, in doing new, new builds, construction. Yet, no. um, so your portfolio, is it a buy and hold strategy? Is it a rental and flip strategy? What kind of percentages are you holding? Sure. What kind of turnover is there going to be in the portfolio? Have you thought about things like that? So currently housing JV, um, we're, in, we're 42 units strong. So 42 doors. Um, we're in four states, two cities. So we're in Toledo, Dayton, Columbus, and Detroit. Uh, Detroit is our second largest holdings after Columbus. Um, we hold single family, multifamily, duplexes, and a couple of warehouse structures. Um, you know, initially we started off with buy and hold, simply because when you look at what fuels gentrification, it's, it's the rapid appreciation and flipping of property. So an investor comes into an impoverished community, sinks a lot of money into a home, and is able to sell it for a premium. And those continued comps not only increase the housing values, but they increase the property taxes, and they start to put pressure on the neighborhood from a community standpoint, whether it's code enforcement, whether it's zoning regulations, et cetera. So initially, because we started and betaed in Columbus in central Ohio, you know, it was a matter of, wow, we're in an affordable housing crisis as we speak. The neighborhoods we're investing in are seeing hyper gentrification, and we don't want to help fuel that because these people are being displaced. But I'll tell you, when we finally got to Detroit, 
you know, we realized that home ownership from a minority perspective is at an all-time low. When you look at the neighborhoods that are just been historically disinvested in, I mean, they're still trying to recover from the 1967 riots. So for us, you know, we were talking to a lot of major stakeholders. We talked to Huntington Bank. We talked to the head of the CRA program, the Community Reinvestment Act. And we talked to a lot of, you know, brokers, Fifth Third Bank, bankers. And we said to ourselves, hey, guys, how can we improve the market? How can we improve values? And, you know, even with the Detroit Home Mortgage Program, there is a lack of lending in these communities. And I'm talking from, I think, September was the last, no, May. May 2018, there was only 91 home mortgages made in the city of Detroit. Wow. A healthy market, you'd see about 8,000 loans produced. And right now, Detroit is just abysmal. It's disgusting, in all honesty. And it's just, it's dried up from a, a private debt market standpoint. So we said to ourselves, okay, maybe, you know, on one end we own 20, I want to say 27 units, give or take in Detroit, single family, multi-commercial, et cetera. But we said to ourselves, instead of just focusing on buy and hold, you know, as much as we believe buy and hold is great for us and our investors, really when you look at what the community needs in terms of economic development, you need home ownership. So we switched our model and we said to ourselves, look, we're going to do a dedicated debt fund for flipping properties. And when we flip we're not just flipping to an investor trying to make a quick property. We created what's known as the HOP program, the um, Home Ownership Path program. And you know we're working with our director of lending, who's a mortgage broker, banker. Um, and we were just looking at what are the barriers to entry for the lending markets and the private debt markets. In Detroit, the average credit score is 585. The average debt is at least 2,000. You know, there's, you know, the, the jobs, the type of jobs, there's extreme vacancy, extreme poverty, extreme, et cetera, et cetera. So we said to ourselves, how could we be that intermediary who can kind of get these candidates ready at a fixed price to then be transitioned into the traditional debt markets? So I'd say we're at, right now we're about 65, what is it, 35, 65, 35, where 65% of our portfolio is buy and hold and stabilized. And that remaining 35 is vacant, but we're looking to do, like, as I said, home ownership and um, rental units. Okay. And, you know, speaking of Detroit, I saw online that you were, you were just in Detroit. Last weekend for Afrotech. And I got to take Plugging issue. I, I, I have to take issue with your caption under one of your photos. You Thanks. said Detroit has the ability to become the center of Afrotech. Listen, I cannot let that happen. <laughs> Nothing against Detroit, but it has to be Columbus. But Columbus. I, I'm curious sure, to see sure, sure. why you said that. Sure. And then I want to put out a call to action to Columbus to not let that slip through our fingers. Sure. So I'll speak to your point. On one end, I'd say that when we're looking from just a, a demographer or demographic perspective, Detroit right now is a predominantly and a majority minority and black city. So Columbus, we're here, but not in the levels of saturation that minorities exist in Detroit. Next, when you look at the, um, I, so I studied city and regional planning at Ohio State. Um, and, you know, one thing I learned at the Knowlton School of Architecture was about the life and death of cities and the rebirth, et cetera. So we're in the Midwest, and these are a lot of Rust Belt communities. Now, when you look at the infrastructure, public infrastructure, I'd say that Detroit, you know, in their heyday, they were the third largest economy in the country. Right now, when you look at the Michigan MSA, no different than the Columbus MSA, and an MSA is a metropolitan statistical area. The Columbus MSA is, of what, about a million people? Michigan has 5.6 million people. The city of Detroit itself has 600,000, and that's because of the shrinkage and the, just the flocking away from the city because of the depression, the bankruptcy, et cetera. Columbus is at a million. 
So when I say Detroit can be the black tech capital of the country, when you look at Afrotech, Afrotech and Blavity, particularly their, their media agency and publication, has received an extreme amount of funding, and they are now the representation, I want to say, of the, the minority community from a media standpoint. And the, the younger demographic, you know, I know we have the BETs and these other publications, but in terms of being relevant socially to today's, you know, environment, I'd say Blavity is it, and their leadership is heavily and predominantly minority. They do a once a year conference in San Francisco. I was just out in San Francisco for their conference in November. It's happening again this November. Um, and, you know, I think for them, planting a flag in Detroit is like a testament of things to come. Detroit didn't get Amazon, but Detroit has infrastructure. So I love Columbus. I've been in Columbus nine years. But when I look at the traffic, I'm like, oh, my God. I don't think we've built big enough and quick enough and fast enough. I know we had a light rail issue a few years back. We didn't push it. I know we're considering the Hyperloop. I was very optimistic about the BRT, bus rapid transit down Cleveland, but it seems to just be a glorified CODA bus. And I just say that when you look at infrastructure and quality of life, Detroit can handle the critical mass. And I think Columbus still has some infrastructural issues we have to work through in order to maintain a quality of life as we keep increasing population. I think we've been very insulated in terms of the economy from you know eds, meds, education, medicine, manufacturing, logistics, finance. I mean, we're great. And that's what allowed us to kind of prosper through the recession. But when I look at it from a, a, a population growth and a quality of life perspective, I'd say that, hey, by 2020, we, we will be built, but then we have to get used to it. And then we, we have to evolve. So, you know, I'm, I'm rooting for Columbus, but I'll tell you, what forced us out of the market was the real estate market and the price appreciation. I've been in this market nine years. And I'll tell you, I cannot overpay in the communities that I used to pay in. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to just come to terms with the way the market is now and how are we gonna resolve the, the congestion, the traffic, the public transportation issues. Man, I, I, it, it's logical, <laughs> but I'm gonna be illogical <laughs> on the side of Columbus, okay? I, you, you make a great argument. Please, please. All right, so, please. you know, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. We end every episode with, what do you want your impact to be? At the end of the day, you know, when all the chips are down, uh, what, what do you want your legacy and the legacy of Housing JV to be? So I'm gonna end with one more story, and my stories typically come from books. Mm -hmm. um, now this book is not just the book. So on one end, the book is called The House That Jack Built. And Jack refers to Jack Ma. But it also coincides with a bunch of uh, public events that occurred through Alibaba, and they actually happened in Detroit. Not to plug Detroit again, but they did happen in Detroit in the last year. And essentially, when Jack Ma was building Alibaba, he said to the, his founders, and he has 25 founders, but he had, let's say, 100 people in the room before he whittled down to 25. And he said to him, look, we're not building a company for five years. We're not building a company for 10 years. We're building a company that's going to be around in 100 years from now. And if you're interested in building the future, this is going to be the venture. So, you know, that level of intentionality, last year I was at Columbus Startup Week, and I remember prior to the acquisition of the Cover My Med CEO, he did, I think, the keynote, and he spoke about building a business and not just a startup. A lot of startups are interested in quick liquidity or liquid events and quick purchases and quick VC funding, but they're not interested in being around 10 years. And that reminded me of Jack Ma's 100 years. And I said, wow, this is great that we have a leader saying, look, you need to build a business to be around 10 years. That's what's going to build an impact. So I said to myself, with that level of intention, I was never thinking that far ahead into the future. And that level into the future is generations. So, you know, I remember sitting for like a week with my team in our office and really just doing this kind of brainstorming and iterating of, 
what's our mission, what's our vision, what do we believe? And for us, I came down to my, my purpose statement and that's in 2065, I'll be 75 years old. In 2065, I wanna be, a room, I wanna be in a room, I'm gonna throw a party. We'll, we'll pick where we're gonna throw that party, but we're gonna throw a party. And in that room, we're gonna have our friends, our family, our fanatics, our business owners, our associates, we're gonna have our community, the collective influence of our work will be in that room and there'll be a representation of what we were able to accomplish. So right now my, my puck is 35 years from now in 2019, it'll be 34 years. But really housing JV is gonna revolutionize the affordable housing crisis in America and we will be the premier minority platform for reinvesting dollars in community of color or communities of color. I appreciate that so much, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. I close out the show with my one takeaway. And if there's anything that I could sense, I can feel, I'm not just listening, man, I'm resonating with this, is master your damn craft. Mr. John D'Elia has put in the time, the dedication, the focus, the mistakes, the sweat, and he's put his money where his mouth is. And so if you wanna be successful, in the startup world, in the business world, and in life, master your craft. This has been Elio Harmon. This has been the 614 Startups. This is why we do what we do. Thank you so much for joining us. Peace. Thank you so much for joining us on the 614 Startups podcast. My name is Elio Harmon. Episodes of the podcast roll out every week at www.614startups.com and on iTunes. Don't forget, follow us on IG and Facebook at 614startups. Peace.